I'm going to begin reading in verse 50. We'll go all the way to the end of the chapter. Follow along with me. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. I draw your attention to that very last verse, verse 58. The exhortation from the apostle to this church. That they would be steadfast and immovable. Why is he exhorting them to be immovable? As we saw all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, they had been tempted from false teachers in the middle of the church to move away from the gospel. The gospel that we read there that they had, that had been delivered to them, the gospel that they had believed, received, the gospel by which they were being saved, that very gospel they had received from Paul when he came preaching it to them, they were moving off of it. And he's encouraging them now to be immovable, to be steadfast, to endure, do not move off of that, he says, which of first importance. Because some had come into the church and they were saying that there was no future resurrection for Christians. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ certainly rose from the dead bodily, but in the future there is no future bodily resurrection. And you remember the Apostle Paul correcting the error says, no, 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 no. For all those who are in Christ by faith, there is organic connection. We are in Christ we have died with him, we have been buried with him, and we will be raised with him to newness of life. And so whatever is true of the first fruits must also be true of the rest of the crop. Well, some scoffers would say to that, okay, Paul, if you say that there is a future bodily resurrection, then what is that going to look like? Do we just get the same bodies that we have now? We considered that this last Lord's Day, that our bodies will be much like the bodies that we're in now, the same kind of bodies. They won't be dog bodies or cat bodies or emu bodies. They will be human bodies, except we see that even from creation, there are the same kinds of bodies, consider heavenly bodies, sun, star, moon, same kinds of bodies that differ in glory, and so it will be with our own body. That though we will have the same kind of body, it will be altogether different than the one that we're in. That no longer will it be held back by sin and frailty. No longer will it be corruptible that is subject to death and decay. No, our bodies will be as glorious as the risen Christ and the same as his body. As we just saying, his glory, his image will be stamped on us in that day. 
And the fullness of his glory will be reflected in us as we are raised from the dead. Well, now we have this concluding paragraph, this concluding sermon, so to speak, a glorious exposition of the truth of what God has promised in the scriptures and then applied for their endurance at the very end. I'd have you follow along with me in verse 50. Notice the Apostle Paul introduces first a problem. All he's doing is recapping verses 42 to 49. You see that there, that what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. Verse 43, it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. There's a little bit of a problem. He says this, flesh and blood, that is the corruptible bodies that you and I live in now. These bodies that are subject to death and decay, those bodies are not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, when Christ comes again and his rule is consummated and established in the entire cosmos, physically and visibly for all to see, then you and I need a different kind of body by which to inhabit that kingdom and to reign with him forever. So the problem in verse 50 is that our, pro- is that our bodies won't work in that kingdom. This is why resurrection is necessary, he's explaining. Flesh and blood, that is, decaying and dying bodies, cannot inherit the eternal, incorruptible kingdom of God. Now, of course, this in and of itself gets to the very heart of Christmas, doesn't it? That if flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and that is our most most outstanding problem, then how is it that God would overcome this problem of sin and death for us? John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, And the word, he says, became flesh. The author of Hebrews, that is the Apostle Paul, for any of you who care, says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Same thing that Paul is saying here. He himself likewise partook of the same things. The eternal Son of God became flesh and blood. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the message of Christmas, and it centers on this idea of flesh and blood. That is, that the incorruptible Son of God willingly became corruptible flesh and blood so that corruptible flesh and blood might become like the incorruptible Son of God one day. Amen? That is Christmas. And we see all of that packed into verse 50. So Paul presents us with a problem in verse 50, but he immediately in verse 51 moves to a solution. If you and I are going to need different kinds of bodies, then how is God going to make this wrong thing right? Behold, he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. Now, when the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery, what he's not saying is, I'm going to leave a bunch of clues and you, the church, need to make like Sherlock Holmes and see if you can figure it out. A mystery in the New Testament is always filled with the content of the gospel. But you realize that when God reveals to us the good news centered on the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ, he never does it completely. 
that it's revealed step by step over the course of history, revealed through his prophets, then through his apostles. And so you and I know the gospel more clearly now and more fully than Abraham knew and Moses knew and David and the prophets knew. Because it's unfolded across redemptive history like a flower. And yet you and I, says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, still, with all the knowledge that you and I have of the gospel, we still only see in a mirror yet dimly, don't we? There is still more knowledge yet to be revealed about the glory of Christ that is coming and of the kind of bodies that you and I are going to have when we are raised into the image, into His likeness, of his glory. And so he says, I'm telling you a mystery. I'm telling you something that is revealed that you are to receive by faith and yet is not fully revealed but will be one day. Take it by faith and receive it. And he says this, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all, whoop, (laughs) to do that, the devil is in Siri. To do that, He says, let me just start over. (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And he says in, he explains it here in just a handful of words, that you and I are going to need to have a body transformation. Right now it's Christmas time, New Year's is right around the corner. I know that there's a number of you that are thinking about body transformations, That time between now and next summer and your bathing suit is happening, that's coming really quick. Or you might be thinking as you age, you might be thinking there are things that I want to be able to do in the coming years that if I don't see a body transformation, I'm not going to be able to do as effectively. And so you and I are thinking about body transformations. You can go online and you can Google it, body transformation. You'll see before and after pictures. You'll see seven-step programs and 12-step programs and 30-step programs. And all you need is the diligence and the discipline to follow through it. But notice that the kind of transformation that the Apostle Paul is talking about here has nothing to do with your diligence. It has nothing to do with your discipline. It has nothing to do with a month's or a year's process. No, it is something that will happen immediately, and it will happen in the very power of God that created the very cosmos. Look at the language that he uses. He's going to use three phrases. The first phrase that he uses, speaking of when we shall be changed or how we will, he says it will happen in a moment. See that there, beginning of verse 52. In a moment. The Greek word there is atomoi. It's taken from the Greek word Adamos. It's where we get our word Adam. And in the Greek world, it is the smallest indivisible particle of time. And he clarifies it in the very next phrase. That is, in a twinkling of an eye or in the blink of an eye. As fast as you might blink, that's how fast the transformation is going to take place, the Apostle Paul says. And so in two phrases, he's described the how. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And then when is it going to happen? Well, he explains here. It's going to happen at the last trumpet. When the trumpet sounds in the New Testament, the apostles always connect trumpet blasts to the victorious return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
Now, anybody who is familiar with the Old Testament, when they hear things like that, would immediately have a number of images pop in their minds. They might think, for instance, of Leviticus 23 and the Feast of Trumpets. They would think of the trumpets that would be blown on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 25. They would think, for instance, of Joshua's victory at Jericho or Gideon's victory over the Midianites. Or they would think of the many words of the prophets who predicted the future triumph of the Messiah figured by the trumpeting of these instruments. I think that's what the Apostle John has in mind in his own vision. This is what he sees. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. How is it going to happen? It's going to be in the most indivisible moment of time like in an atom of time, in the blinking of an eye, when the trumpet sounds, and that trumpet will signify the remaking of all things, that in a moment, the very word by which all things are created will, by the power of his word, tear everything in this cosmos down to its studs, remove everything that is corrupted, and replace it with a new creation where there is no more death, sin, or the devil anymore. All when the trumpet sounds. And what we see in these first couple of verses, in verses 50 to 52, is that this future transformation is in some sense a mystery. But even though this future transformation is a mystery, what we see in verses 53 to 57, that it will be our certain victory. It is our certain victory. Notice verse 53. That this is, first of all, a necessary change. That if you and I are going to inherit the kingdom of God, it has to be the case that these perishable bodies become imperishable. Resurrection is necessary, verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. And this isn't just a necessary change, verse 53, but in verses 54 all the way to verse 57, it is a scripture fulfilling change. Notice what he says in verse 54. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable. That language there of put on is some of the Apostle Paul's favorite language. He uses it all over his letters to describe the taking off of one nature, of one way of living, of one way of being, and putting on as a new garment, as it were, a new identity, a new nature, and a new way of living and being. And it's saying the same thing here. That the perishable is going to be taken off and thrown away, as it were, and we are going to put on a new garment, an imperishable garment, a garment that is fit for the kingdom of God. And he says, and this is what God has been promising all along. He says, we're going to see it in Isaiah 25. That's what Isaiah preached. In fact, that's what Hosea preached. And that's what we see in verses 54 and 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That first line there at the end of verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah. And they fall right in the middle of chapters 24 to 27 in the book of Isaiah, which is affectionately known as the little apocalypse. That in those chapters, you see a prefiguring of a greater day of the Lord yet to come. And right in the middle of those chapters, 
right at the heart of this little apocalypse are these verses in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 25, he explains that God is going to bring deliverance, but that deliverance is going to come through destruction. And he's going to do it on a mountain, on Mount Zion. Mount Zion in the prophetic, language, in the prophetic literature always refer, refers to that mountain on which God's salvation is going to come. That all of the nations flow upward, up the mountain to Mount Zion, that mountain that towers above every other mountain. Mount Zion is referred to figuratively elsewhere in the New Testament as, as the dwelling place of the very people of God. It is the new creation, so to speak. And on this mountain, he is going to, according to the prophet Isaiah, provide a feast. It's the very same feast that we see in Revelation 19, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at this feast, we see a number of things is going to follow or is going to happen. There is going to be food filled with marrow, and there is going to be rich wine flowing. And all of that language is the language of joy and victory and prosperity that signifies that the messianic kingdom has been established. The Messiah has come and his kingdom is here. But it also says this: that at the feast. The death veil that spreads over all of the nations is going to be removed. Death is going to be swallowed up. Every tear is going to be wiped away. Does that sound familiar? And all the shame of those who are on Zion will be removed once and for all. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And he follows it up with these words from Hosea. It's the very end of Hosea. That in Hosea, death is God's agent of judgment against Israel because of their sinful rebellion and idolatry. And you get to the end of the, end of the book and it seems like there's practically no hope. All you see is death's victory and death's sting. This is God's agent against his own people. And it seems like death has won. Is there any hope for God's people at all? Well, here the Apostle Paul takes the very words of Hosea, flips it on its head, and turns it into a taunt against death itself through the lens of the gospel. He says, O oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? No, if it is the case that the Lord Jesus Christ has indeed been raised bodily from the dead and you and I are organically connected to him by faith, that is, all of us who would count ourselves Christians, who have repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, united to him by his Holy Spirit, that in the day that you and I are raised as he was raised, it will be in that day that death, sin, and the devil are defeated once and for all. And death, which seemed to have the last word, does not in fact have the last word and will be trampled underfoot not only the Son of God but his victorious church on the last day of history. That we win is Paul's point. That we win. And that's exactly what Isaiah and Hosea spoke of, was our victory in Christ. We see that there in verses 56 and 57. He refers, first of all, to the sting of death is sin. If any of you have ever been stung by a wasp, and you know we were talking about the previous uh, building that we were at, had, had, had uh, 
jungle gym equipment that dated all the way back to the apostles. And my daughter Julia was climbing through a, a, a wheel, a tire, back when you dug tires into the ground for people to play on. And you, and you dug, and she was going through it, and there was a hornet's nest up in it, and, it, and she came running in, and she had stings all over her head. Many of you know what that's like. It had been stung by a bee or a wasp. And, and what you know is that it happens in an instant. It's painful. It's instantaneous. You almost don't even see it coming. And that's the way that death is sometimes, isn't it? The, the sting of death is sin. Sin is ultimately what brings it about. That death is the consequence of sin. And the power of sin is the law. The law's power is ultimately condemn. What the Apostle Paul is saying is not that the law is bad. The law is good. It's holy and it's just. But the power of sin is the law. What he means by that is the power of the law is to condemn us for our lawlessness. That all of us who have failed to obey our Creator by loving Him with everything that we have, all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and from that to love our neighbor as ourselves, every second of every minute of every day, of every week of our life, permanently, perfectly, and perpetually, you and I are deserving of condemnation from an all-holy God and an eternity in hell. But God in His mercy did not leave us there. Paul says that is the sting of death. The power of sin is the law. It condemns us. But he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That because of our lawlessness, sin and death are arrayed against us, but Christ gives us the victory over both sin and death because Christ fulfilled the law. Because Christ endured death's sting for our sin, and he rose again. Because in Christ, we are, quote, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he willingly endured the cross. 1 John 5, 4 to 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Now, he's not talking about the strength of your faith. He's not talking about the subjective experience of your faith. He's talking about that faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And what is it? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes the very heart and the content of that faith, the Christian faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. That if you confess with your mouth Christ Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, Christ is or that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it is that message, that gospel, that has overcome the world. It is the victorious gospel. So how do we as Christians then, how do we cultivate a kind of victorious mentality, a winner's mentality? How do we become a community of overcomers as a church? Handful of things, just borrowing this from John, which you just heard from. Number one, you have to be born of God. That is, you have to be born again spiritually, given new life from the Holy Spirit. And having given new life then, you have to have faith imparted to you by God himself as a gift. And in that faith, you would believe the very message of the gospel, that is that Jesus is God's son, sent by the Father, willingly enduring the life 
of suffering and of shame and dying the death that we deserve and yet being raised from the dead and being exalted by the very power of God so that all who would believe in him might be raised in his likeness. And that all those who believe in Jesus in this way root themselves in his death and his resurrection. And Paul says that that is for us a matter of greatest importance. And so those who don't ever move off the gospel, those who keep the gospel centered on the death and the resurrection of Christ, those who don't ever move off the gospel will walk and will work in this life as winners, as those who are victorious. But when you and I make anything other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, make anything other than His death and His bodily resurrection of utmost importance to the identity, the message, and the mission of the church, then you and I will not live as the victors that we are in Christ. We will be tossed to and fro by every worldly doctrine. We will be easily made to be afraid by things in this world that you and I have no reason to be afraid of. Think that Christ has come and defeated the one that had the very power of death, who held all of us in captivity, in slavery to the very fear of death. If you and I, in Christ by faith, have been freed from slavery to the fear of death, and there is no greater thing in this world to fear than death because of its inevitability, then what else is there in this world that you have to fear? Or let me put it another way. You and I are fragile beings. We live in a world cursed by sin. There's all kinds of things to fear, things that can harm us and dissuade us and discourage us, things even that can take our lives. But if we were to put it a little bit more accurately, it's not so much that you and I are fearless, it's this. That to live victorious in Christ is to no longer be a slave to fear. That it no longer controls you. It no longer devours you. It no longer consumes you. It no longer defines you. There are lots of things in this world to be afraid of. But none of those things can win. None of those things can ultimately defeat you and destroy you. Death can't do it. The devil can't do it. Because Christ has won. And Christian, you are in Christ. And so I would ask you, is there anything in your life that cripples you with fear? Is there anything in your life that has you paralyzed in fear? Can't take the next step forward. Can't talk to that person. Have to avoid that place or those thoughts. Beloved, submit those to the truth of the gospel, the heart of the gospel of what Christ has done and perhaps God in his mercy, though fears are real, will have you walk in greater victory knowing that in Christ you are not a slave to them anymore. We are victors. And that's what Paul says in the last verse. Therefore, because you and I are going to be raised with Christ, because his victory is our victory, therefore, verse 58, let us walk and work as winners, as victors. And it brings us right back to where we began. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. He's saying that just because you will one day be raised from the dead doesn't give you any excuse to be lackadaisical, not lazy, well, it's all going to work out in the end. So why labor for the gospel's sake? Why put my sin to death? Why do any of these things? These were all errors that the Corinthians were dealing with. 
He says, be steadfast, endure, persevere, run the race. There are going to be times when your arms are going to droop and your legs are going to feel weary. Keep on running and don't move. Stay dead sinner, keeping your eyes on Christ as he is the perfecter of your faith. Keep your eyes on Christ. He's finished the race and you're running to him. By his grace. So, beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable. Walk as winners, he says, but he says, secondly, to work as winners. That as you do in your steadfastness, in your immovability in the gospel, you should be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. The New Testament uses that language, abounding, in a number of ways. That you and I, because of God's grace to us in Christ, are abounding in hope. You and I are abounding in love. You and I are abounding in thanksgiving and worship because of all that we received by God through Christ. And we are here abounding in the Lord's work. This is what the Apostle Paul says in his other letter to the Corinthians. He says this, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. How much grace? All grace. Does God the Father withhold anything from those who are his sons and daughters in Christ? Nothing. All of it is yours in Christ. All grace abounds to you. Why? So that, he says. Here's the reason. So that having all sufficiency, in all things, at all times. Are you lacking anything in Christ? All sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. That the God is able to make all grace abound to you, has enabled you to abound in every good work. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And what is that work? It's not any kind of work that you and I do. Paul explains it earlier in chapter 3 in his letter. It is gospel work. It's that work which builds on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. It's the work of preaching the word. It's the work of ministering the word to one another in our discipling. It's the work of evangelism to our neighbors and families and friends. It's the faithfulness to God's word to believe it and proclaim it as he gives opportunity so that he might accomplish his purposes in the world. That's the work that he's given us. And we do that. We speak the word in whatever context God has given us to speak it as victorious people knowing, in verse 58, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Can it ever feel sometimes like in our evangelism your labor is in vain? Can it feel sometimes like your discipling and instruction of our children is in vain? Can it feel sometimes like your ministry in the local church is in vain? Paul says, brother or sister, center yourself on the gospel. Make the, make, the resurrect, make the death and resurrection of Christ the very heart of which you aim to preach and proclaim and instruct one another in and do so with a spirit of victory. Do so as winners knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, your work is never empty. It's never vain. It will never come back void. It will always work. It will always, though perhaps not in our time, not in the way that we might always see it, not in the way 
that we would time it, but it will always accomplish God's purposes. And so I wonder if there are ways in which you've grown discouraged in the work of the Lord. Maybe you haven't seen the fruit that you hope to see. Maybe it's been a, a slow going in your own life and in the lives of others. Maybe you've even been tempted to think, does this even work? How easily can we be tempted to man's wisdom and man's philosophies and man's ideologies and away from the gospel thinking maybe that will work better? Beloved, we are to be patient. But our work is never in vain. I saw this illustrated just yesterday in a post by a good friend of mine named Garrett Kell. Garrett Kell is a pastor of Delray Baptist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Three days ago, he was with some friends for a, a Christmas hangout, and their oldest daughter seized up. Her brain endured seizures, and they were hospitalized. 20 hours straight of seizures. She had to be sedated. Even now, she's in critical condition, and we have been praying for two days. There's all kinds of a flood of emotions that comes with that, isn't there? Oh, what would I do if, if that happened to one of my kids? What would I do if that happened to, to some of my closest friends? What if, what if that happened to somebody in our church? This is what he wrote. Even as his daughter sedated in a hospital bed, the year was 2013. A young guest preacher stepped to the pulpit at Delray Baptist Church. And he hadn't preached much before, but that day he delivered a faithful sermon on Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. The eight people who were in attendance were blessed by his sermon. Eight people. It was a church that had died and this was the very beginnings of a revitalization effort of bringing this dead and dying church back to life. Eight people. He said nine years later, a young lady was having trouble sleeping. So she started reading through the Psalms. She wanted to listen to a sermon on a psalm. So she went to the archives of Delray Baptist Church and listened to the sermon by the young man. She was greatly blessed. And the exposition encouraged her to put down roots into the Lord rather than into the world. Use that sermon from nine years earlier to bring her to repent, believe in the gospel, and grow roots into Christ. That sermon preached to eight people. That sermon that seemed to not do anything, that seemed to have no power whatsoever. Why even preach? He says, that young lady was my daughter, Eden. As I sit by her hospital bedside, I'm grateful for the labors of that young man. Few would know who he is today. He wasn't famous, but he was faithful. And I believe his labors will eternally bless my baby girl. He concludes, brother pastors, and I would extend it, to every saint who's been entrusted with word ministry in this world. Be faithful with God's word. You never know how he might use it. 
The late Pastor Charles Bridges put it this way, our plain and cheering duty is therefore to go forward, to scatter the seed, to believe and wait. The measure and time are with the Lord. We must let him alone with his own work. Ours is the care of service. His is the care of success. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray.